Hi, this is Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown School and Library. We were recently at the National Council of Teachers of English Conference in Baltimore, where we had a great time. I was privileged to sit down with a couple of educators, reviewers, and children's literature specialists during the show, and I'm pleased to share with you these conversations. This one is with Donna Lynn Miller, book whisperer and true friend. Enjoy. some weeks where my app does not it is not in the ad position it's in the in position <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> I think we might do a cold open with that <laughs> yes we're doing a cold open uh, hi everyone it's Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown School and Library I, we're here at NCTE and uh, we've just hit the record button for reels this time in a conversation with Donalyn Miller, um, you know her on Twitter and social media as the Book Whisperer, and you've known her from the Nerdy Book Club. She's one of the founders of the Nerdy Book Club. Um, and you've known her for a while as a scholastic book bear's ambassador. She's written Reading in the Wild and Game Changer. Book, book access for book, all kids. Book access for all kids. I really want to say reading access for all kids, but it's book access for all kids. And Game Changer was done with Colby Sharp, um, educator and author of or creator of the Creativity Project. I don't know how we say that because his editor doesn't seem right. So we're here at NCTE and it seemed a really great time for Donna Lynn to sit down uh, to talk about what's going on in book evaluation, the challenges and, and creating book lists and guides um, specific to a classroom. Um, we had a really great 15 minutes of conversation mm -hmm. that was really amazing, and I wish you could listen to it, but I am unable to hit a record button firmly. <laughs> so, so gentle listeners out there, we're going to try to sort of recreate the conversation a little bit. And I apologize that you can't listen to that, although some bad jokes in there um, and needless discussion about uh, the opening pages of Jaws by Peter Benchley. Um, but still and always, Sidney Sheldon, genius, Ugh. genius. So Donna Lynn and I um, are of a similar vintage and uh, did not know that why literature existed i think when did you learn that why literature existed you know I, I honestly when i started going through my teacher education program and i was a second career teacher mm. so i did not walk into i was an accountant for 10 years and worked in the hotel restaurant industry before i went back to school mm. to get my teaching degree mm. so i was a mom and i had a fifth grader and i was going back to school to get my teaching credentials and looking for books with my daughter, but also the conversations that I was learning in my teacher ed program. I think the very first book I read of a, of more recent publication was The Giver, which I had never read. You know, it didn't exist when yeah. I was in school. And of course, you know, we're talking 1996, 90, let me see. My daughter was born in 1990, so that would have been 2001. Yeah. You know, so it was, it was, I didn't see any, you know, I didn't know about Nancy Gardner. I didn't know about um, Robert Cormier. 
Mm-hmm. I I didn't know about Lipsight. I didn't know about any of these yeah. authors. And even authors like Chris Crutcher, who are still actively publishing, like never saw any of their earlier books yeah. in any class I was in. The only book that I would even say would be classified as YA was The Outsiders, yeah. which I read in, guess what, listeners, the seventh grade. Raise your hand wherever you are if that was also you. But <laughs> because I bet a whole lot of us read it in the seventh grade. That was not I, me. <laughs> I read it in 1980, mm. you know, and, um, you know, some schools in my area in Texas are still reading The Outsiders as their YA choice in the seventh grade. And I'm, like, I'm sure there's a company, <laughs> not to be named, that uh, is very thankful for that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Ms. Hinton somewhere is very mm-hmm. thankful for that as well. Although, yeah. uh, can we mix it up a little bit? Well, you know, it, by itself a great book, but yeah. you know, some other books have been published since then. Yeah. I don't think we can still be trotting that out as our YA title on a list of classics published for adults uh, that we are also assigning to the same 8th yeah. graders or 7th graders and go, oh, we checked a box, we got a YA book, you know, well, that's, which I see happening sometimes. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit before the discovery of the catastrophe of my fingers not working. Um uh, a little bit about the position teachers are in now thinking about, and this is particular to middle grade, you know, so, uh, somewhat in YA, but particular to middle grade in my thinking, you know, a teacher will walk in and say there's 30, 35 kids there. Mm-hmm. Say it's a fourth grade, they're 10-year-olds. You're looking at a group of kids who have very different mechanical reading abilities, but also the emotional intelligence to process different stories. And you can have kids in the fourth grade who are just not ready to make the transition to middle what we think of as middle grade mm-hmm, literature. Mm-hmm. They're they're there for chapter books. Mm-hmm. And that might not be about a mechanical ability. On the other hand, you might have a 10-year-old who's reading All the President's Men. And that was me. Mm-hmm. But again, a weird kid. Well, and, you yeah. had a Nixon exception. I had a Nixon problem, yes. A Nixon <laughs> fixation. Um, so I'm very sympathetic to a teacher who is looking at that set of kids they're also having to deal with the adult aspect of this that it's superintendent or principal even more the parents who have very firm ideas in their mind about what children's literature is that comes out of their own childhoods Mm -hmm. whether that is i want my kids to read the books that i read or i want to produce a i want to produce a child who is an excellent reader and is the most popular and a successful adult, mm-hmm. you know, and really valedictorian and valedictorian and captain of the football team and, and, and honestly mm-hmm. product a child is product. Uh, but then a child who replicates their own choices, mm-hmm. who, who becomes mini me's almost. And we talked a little bit about that, but so I'm, I'm sympathetic to a teacher who confronts all of those different, um, challenges. And then on top of that, all the, additional modern or recent year challenges of making sure that the that the reading material is diversified Mm -hmm. it's a lot to take on you know and most most of my english teacher and language arts colleagues have very little background in children's and young adult literature before they walk into their classrooms Mm -hmm. Um, i've asked this question at, at workshops that i do often how many of you have had two children's and young adult mm-hmm. literature classes. A few hands will, will come up. Generally, librarians who have gone on to get a master's degree in library sciences may have that. Mm-hmm. Um, elementary school teachers may have 
one children's literature mm-hmm. class that they took in their bachelor's program. Secondary teachers, who many of them are majoring in English, um, mm-hmm. and then they're minoring in their education credentials. They may, they may have zero. They may have zero young adult literature courses before they walk into a classroom of their own. So it does start there, yeah. I think. Um, it also depends on the culture of the school and what is being communicated to teachers around the importance of them building their own book knowledge. In some schools, that is not emphasized as yeah. a part of a teacher's ongoing professional development, perhaps in the way that I would do it or that other teachers would. What that means is that teachers who don't have that background are even more dependent on publications, mm-hmm. lists, and other people who are uh, doing the reading and doing that kind of scholarship. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I spent most of my career teaching sixth grade as a classroom teacher, and I, um, as I mentioned. I have kids reading Twilight on the first day of school. Sixth grader walks in, she's already read Twilight. I'm not going back to these nostalgic books. Yeah. You know, she's not going back to read The Great Gilly Hopkins, no offense. But, you know, I'll still have kids in that class who are at the Gilly Hopkins yeah. stage. You know, that age of child is at a wide range of physical, intellectual, mm-hmm. emotional development. One book is not going to meet the needs of all of no. those readers. And ultimately, we have to remind ourselves, it's not about the books anyway. It is about the readers. It is about the reader. It's not about the book. So how can we foster that reader wherever they are with books that they Mm -hmm. want to read? You know, I hear teachers complain a lot. Oh, all my students want to read is Diary of a Wimpy Kid. All my students want to read is a graphic novel. All my students... And I'm like, okay, one, uh, there's nothing wrong with those books no. as part of a reading diet. No. There's nothing wrong with it. But have you ever considered that perhaps the reason they gravitate towards those books is because they don't know what else there is available for them to read? Yeah. And so they de- students are depending on us to have more knowledge than that. Um Interviewing kids and surveying kids, what we find is that many kids say their teachers, librarians, and parents underestimate how hard it is for them to find books to read. I, I think about this a lot because I was very firm in my own, determining my own reading mm-hmm. choices, mm-hmm. you know, and, but I was a weird kid, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Mm-hmm. I wonder if... And maybe you know the answer to this question. How often do kids are kids encouraged to discuss their reading preferences and their reading choices so that they can speak to that intelligently? I think sometimes, you know, kids don't have the they know what they like. They don't know how to tell you what they like mm-hmm. so that you can find it something else. Well, you know, this is one of the things I try to do in the work that I'm doing is mm-hmm. helping teachers and librarians navigate those conversations with kids so that choice is meaningful. It's not just opening up the library yeah. door and flinging kids into the library and going, be free. You just haven't met the right book yet. You know, when you tell a 13-year-old he hasn't met the right book yet, he doesn't believe you anymore. Where is this mystical yeah. book? It's like Atlantis. Why is it so hard to find? Right? So- you know? So, I don't know. but we also have kids. You know, I'll sit down with kids to confer, and you'll say, "Do you?" I've learned not to ask so much what kind of books that you like. Yeah. First out of the gate, especially if I don't know the child, because if that 
if that student, that child has not had much reading experience, mm-hmm. they don't have an answer. So it kind of paints them in the corner like, oh, yeah, I'm talking to a teacher. I'm supposed to like to read. I don't have any favorite books. I don't know what kind of books I like. So now she thinks I'm mm-hmm. not a bad, I'm a bad reader. You know, it's, it's yeah. a, that question shuts down a lot of kids. So what I have tried to start doing as far as reading advisory is getting to know the kid. You know, what are their interests? Mm-hmm. What makes them happy? What do they enjoy doing outside of school? What are their responsibilities outside of school? Oh, that's a good one. You know, because I was the oldest of four kids. You know, I babysat my little brothers and sisters after school. Now, I would read, and they read too, but, you know, a lot of kids had those demands. Yeah. And uh, older kids, you know, they're working and, and helping their families often too. But with, with the students that we're talking about, a lot of them are in after-school care. They've got lots of homework. They have sports practices. Mm-hmm. And that cuts into their reading time too. So uh, parents want the... You mentioned parents and their nostalgia for the books that they want their kids to mm-hmm. read too because they feel like... In the parents that I've talked to about that, Victoria, the, the, there's well-meaning intent underneath some of it I believe they don't know that much about the types of books that are available for kids to read either so they fall back on those books that they remember with some childhood nostalgia that I can tell you they haven't read in 30 years Um, and so they trot out these beloved favorites I remember I had a student who was reading the Lightning Thief series Mm -hmm. and his father did not think those books were literary enough and he refused to let his son read the next book in the series until he had read Tom Sawyer and I said, you know, Tom Sawyer, I understand your nostalgia for that, but sir, when was the last time you read that book? And did you read it when you were 11? Or did you read it when you were 14? Or, You know, it, it's the nostalgia. It's like that book's trapped in amber, and the parents remember that being a good yes. book. Or an important book for kids to read at a certain yeah. age. There's a lot of indoctrination going on mm. behind that, too. I think it's about how are we raising children into a social and cultural heritage that we think makes them educated in some way. Like, you can't get an education without having read some of those books. Yeah. But also, you know, I can sympathize with parents, but we have to push beyond our nostalgia. I can, I, I'm an adult, which means I understand that two things can be true at the same time. You know, over here, I can take my childhood nostalgia for Little House on mm-hmm. the Prairie and how those were some of the only books I actually owned when mm-hmm. I was a kid. And my Holly Hobby bonnet that I begged my mother to buy me. She finally sewed me one. Uh, my sisters and I would play Little House on the Prairie in the backyard, growing our crops. We made my little sister ride in the wagon. We had St. Bernard dogs. We tied a jump rope to one of our dogs. He was our oxen. I can remember all that with such fondness. But I also know, as an adult who is an educator and a parent, that a full-page illustration with paw and blackface is a problem. Is a problem. When Ma talks about how the only good engine is a dead engine, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to promote censorship on the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) We appreciate that. And I I don't think that's necessarily appropriate for every community but i would challenge teachers librarians and parents one go back and read some of those books that you have such childhood nostalgia Mm -hmm. for before you put them in the hands of children just because that book has always been in your classroom library or you brought your own copies from home and you want to share them with children does not 
absolve you of your responsibility to meet the needs of kids mm-hmm. right in front of you. And you can't just shove those books on the shelf and ho- and stick your head in the sand and pretend that that content is not there. You have to be willing to engage in conversations with children about those books. And then also, how can we enhance that yeah. to broaden their understanding? Yeah. So you've talk, you talk a lot about um, book knowledge and knowing books and knowing what's out there, which can be a tremendously huge job. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons uh, that you are successful in your own right is other teachers look to you about these things. So how do you how do you start thinking about building a set of books, building that context? You mean as far as lists, yeah. classroom libraries, collection development, even looking at the books that we have with our children at home? Yeah. You know, I think reading a lot of children's and young adult literature is useful. I mean, how do you know? what books are available for kids. Yeah. It's challenging to read. I mean, I read about 400 books a year. That's not even 10% of the books that are published for no. young people every year. And I also read books published for adults yeah. in that mix. So I have to focus my reading and read strategically. You can't read mm-hmm. everything. Um, I think I even wrote a nerdy book club post a few years back titled so many books, so little time tips for reading strategically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to read all 13 books in a series. No. You can read the first one or two. You can still offer that up to kids. You can visualize what student or child might be interested in that book. I think knowing your students is just as important because it's, as again, the book may be the most fabulous book in the world, but you need to match it to a kid. (laughs) Grace Lynn and I were talking about this. Um, so I was on Grace Lynn's podcast last year, and we were talking about this, mm-hmm. and part of it was about conferences. Mm-hmm. And I sort of made this point, um, the Venn diagram overlaps on this. It is not always the book that has the most elevated language. Nope. Or the most superlatively developed plot. No. Or the most um, pertinent themes. Frequently, the book that's most relevant to a conference or a classroom or a discussion is the most accessible mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. That that a variety of kids, because again, you know, thinking about a classroom with the thirty plus kids in it, mm-hmm. <coughs> pardon me, is uh, again that variety of emotional development and technical mm-hmm. ability. Kids need to be able that you don't just read a book. You, you talk about the book, too, mm-hmm. and having that accessible book that the variety of kids can bond over and chat about. I mean, even if they disagree with each other about the book, they're still talking about it. The book is just a vehicle for the conversation. Yes. You know, talking with teachers, they often, they, they know, we know, educators know we have a responsibility to have, the kids need to make academic growth. I mean, that's the kind of the business that we're mm-hmm. in. Kids need to continually grow in their reading skill. But what does that look like? It's not just reading harder books. Mm-hmm. It's not just reading books that have an award sticker on them. Mm-hmm. It's about how is that child growing as a reader? I'm always thinking about reading identity, that word reader. And how do we see ourselves in that word? And how do we see ourselves positively in that word? And how do we sometimes see ourselves negatively in that word? Mm-hmm. You know, when you start looking at the kids that we're talking about, our middle our middle grade mm-hmm. kids, they already have a reading identity that may that's an accumulation of all of the reading experiences they've had. So you may have kids who feel so defeated as readers 
you're just trying to get them to read anything at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the child's interests matter too. I want my, my I want my students to have books that mean something to them personally. It's not about my preferences. It's not about my opinions. Mm-hmm. It's about how am I meeting the needs of that reader? And if I can get a student to read a book, then I can move them to the next one. So, but if they don't have any positive reading experiences at all, it doesn't matter what book it is that you're putting in front of them. You've got to get them to take a chance. So that's why I think that you, it's not, yes, it's important to have books that have literary merit that may win awards. Some of the books that catch kids as readers may be less than highbrow books. They may be movie novel Mm tie-ins. You know, they might be graphic novels. They might be... I think graphic novels are just as literary. That's another conversation. Uh, They may be a series that has endless, 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 you know, books in this series. You know, like Rainbow Fairies. Or (laughs) Warriors. I still don't... Are those cats all alive out there in the forest? I I just really don't know. Oh, my goodness. I had a whole group of sixth graders in my class one year that loved the Warriors books. And they had scorn for me a little bit because I only had three or four in my classroom library. Isn't there like 25 or 30 I think there's at least that many. I worked worked there when it was like there was still like seven or eight. And people did not understand. I'm like, I don't think you understand... That those books are all about group formation, about family formation. Mm-hmm. They, they basically they're a school story. Mm-hmm. If you took, what that, it's, it's a ginger cat. Uh-huh. You're just like if you turn that into a ginger kid going to a new school. Uh-huh. It's a school story. <laughs> it's a school story. <laughs> um, and and so then when I because a lot of my friends and neighbors know that I work in children's books, you know they will come to me and and, and say, well, can you suggest a book for the for my kid? And I said, well, let me talk to your kid. What are stories that you enjoy? And I don't mean books. Mm-hmm. Stories. What are stories I think that you enjoy? A great question. What are movies that you enjoy? What is what is music that you've enjoyed? Mm-hmm. Why? What was the thing you responded to about that? And you find and then you oftentimes find a way into a book because it's not the cosmetics of it. Mm-hmm. It's what's the underlying resonance. Mm-hmm. Which I find interesting because I think uh, uh, you find this with the teen literature. Nobody really wants to talk about it. We'll talk about it here a little bit. Uh, I hope the management turns the sound off for this part. Um, especially if those teen trilogies. Mm-hmm. It's not the author that's the draw. Mm-mm. It's the story itself. It's the trope. Yeah. Or the setting. Mm-hmm. Or that character that mm-hmm. they bond with. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily the author's language there's mm-hmm. some strange alchemy about it and you oftentimes find that there's something in those teens lives or those middle graders lives that really cause them to bond with that story and it's not even necessary i mean it could be tangential to even the major plot points of the yes. book but there may be a secondary character i mean yes. it, it, it's about the reader it's not about the book so how are we taking those books and meeting the needs of readers with them yes. you know with collection building a classroom library you know a lot of teachers are self-funding those mm-hmm. uh, colby and i when we wrote game changer we surveyed about fourteen thousand teachers and librarians and mm-hmm. asked them about funding um and i think that also is reflective in the books that are offered to kids in the classroom because yeah. if if my classroom library looks like i got it out of a garage sale guess what 
if my classroom library looks like I cannibalized my own children's bookshelves at home, mm-hmm. oh, she's an eighth grader. She's not reading Frendel again. I'll take it down to my classroom. That's the state for many teachers. Yeah. So what we need is institutional and systemic support for teachers and librarians yeah. to have those books. It's di- it, Talking about collection development is important, but you can't build a collection if you don't have any funding to buy books. Um, yes. And that so that's another mm-hmm. part of the conversation that I think administrators oh, play a role. Absolutely. But also, I do think the public plays a role. And that I won't get onto my hobby horse on, um, on property tax funding, based <laughs> funding for education. But if you want to talk about systemic institutional inequity and... And and the choices that we make that will per, that do permanently enforce inequity, uh, looking at uh, public school funding, mm-hmm. which is about property taxes, is you know people should take a good hard look at themselves mm-hmm. on that, mm-hmm. because that that is really how this happens in far too many places. I, I know that's happened in my own state of Texas. I have stepped off my soapbox <laughs> because I really could go for hours about yeah, that. Yeah. I really, really could. That's one thing about working in a lot of schools and interacting mm-hmm. with a lot of schools, like we both do now in different roles, is you do see the systemic pieces more than you perhaps would when I was just a teacher. I don't want to say just a teacher, but when I was just a teacher with only one classroom, mm-hmm. you know, and now uh, you see a lot more uh, of those things. So when you were doing Game Changer with Colby, what was what was important to you guys thinking about book access? Well, to me, access access means several things, really. Yeah. It means access the physical books yeah. is one aspect of mm-hmm. access. Intellectual access is mm-hmm. another aspect. So when we rem- limit kids and won't let them read a book unless it's at a certain level, even if they want to read it, when we tell kids a book has to be a certain genre, when we won't let them read about a topic that they're fascinated with because the book is not 100 pages long and you can't use it for your book report, yeah. we are actually denying kids intellectual intellectual access to ideas that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, we also look at social and cultural access. So how are we opening up access to include as many voices as possible? You know, how are we looking at different voices, different perspectives, different points of view, different lived experiences? Mm-hmm. How are we giving kids access to all the world of humanity, mm-hmm. ideas, people, not only so that they can see themselves in those books, but also so they can learn about people who do not look like yeah. them. So we were speaking in the last minutes of the episode, uh, you know, we talked about Laura Ingalls Wilder, again, the Little House books, but there, there's Louise Erdrich's books, mm-hmm. and then I mentioned Harriet Gillen Robin, mm-hmm. and there is a variety of pieces of literature that you can put aside, alongside the Little House books uh, that create a larger field mm-hmm. of vision of what those lives were like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thinking extrapolating from that there are many different lives now even within that classroom of all those different kids and i imagine many of our listeners now know about chimamanda and gozi adichie's mm-hmm. ted talk about the danger of a single story and it's mm-hmm. about the idea of holding up any one story as a monolith to represent yes. an entire group of people so i still this see this happening you we tried out our one whole class novel a year watson's go to birmingham and mm-hmm. uh, we can check a box because we read a book that had black people in it <laughs> but it's not exactly giving kids a full portrayal yeah. of the black experience in America, of cultures outside of America. It's not, you know, it's a beautiful book and I love it. Yeah. But the way that it's used with kids matters just as much yeah. as the book. Uh, that one book, as outstanding and wonderful as it is, fits in, a, in the context of a whole bunch mm-hmm. of other books. Yeah. And I want kids to see as many of those books as possible. 
And what happens is teachers are often, because they don't have the support, the book knowledge or the funding, are they'll pick a book and then that's their book. And that's the book they teach for 15 years or the book that they teach for 20 years because it's a good book. Um, and that's an aspect of the list making too. You know, uh, teachers may look at a list because they do feel the responsibility to be more current, but they don't even know how to get started. Yeah. You know, like, they're so busy and they're so understressed. Mm-hmm. And I, I have all the sympathy in the world for them mm-hmm. because honestly. So then that does mean that then that those of us who are making lists, those mm-hmm. of us who are recommending books have to understand the reality mm-hmm. of teachers and understand that it's not negligence. It is not apathy. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes it is. Uh, you know, ninth graders come and go, but Romeo and Juliet is eternal. So I'm just oh, going to teach it for the next 30 years. You know, <laughs> I think sometimes that happens, but yeah. I don't think that's what happens most of the yeah. time. I think most of the time teachers don't have new books coming into their schools. Mm-hmm. They are not sent to conferences where they might learn about books. Mm-hmm. They are not getting funding for review publications their library librarian may not be able to even stock those in the library anymore or they may not have a librarian you know we've lost over 20 percent of our school librarians in the Mm -hmm. united states in about the past 15 years or so and that number is not going back up no it's not and i think many teachers of an age were very dependent on their librarians as you should be able to use your librarian as a resource but what happens to what happens to book access in a school when there is no librarian in the building anymore. Yeah. Who, does, who is the reading advisor? Who is the person who's reading review publications? Who is the person who's reading the books? You know. Yeah. And so when we are making lists, we have to understand that that is the reality of many teachers now and many librarians too. Yeah. Which means that when we make those lists, we have to be very uh, intentional, use as many resources as we possibly can that have validity and credibility to them. Mm -hmm. Because uh, that list may be the only even list of new books that teachers might see. Now, I am against teachers just taking a list from someone, myself included, and going, oh, here's my shopping list. Yeah. Because that list, my list, as well-intentioned as it might be, still doesn't reflect the readers in your room. Yeah. It still doesn't reflect your community. It still doesn't even reflect your teaching style. You know, it's... it's. I, as I often <laughs> say when people come into the room, well, you know your kids better than I do. Yeah. Or at least I hope you do. Yeah. You're the expert in your own And kids. more of the point... You know your parents better than I yeah, do. Yeah, you do. With parents, I think some of the challenge with them is, you know, we have a lot of much different books now available for kids yeah. than we had when in the 70s or the 80s yeah. or, you know, whenever parents were growing up. And we talk about a lot more topics than we did. You know, we're not looking at the Bobsy twins with the nuclear family anymore we have all sorts of families and all sorts of people as we always did as we always did as we always did did, but now we have more stories yeah you know um my mom came out as a lesbian when i was 17 in 1985 there were no books there were no books yeah there were no books (laughs) there was no there were no books and i was a reader i would have read them yes (laughs) But, you know, now I look at all the wonderful books that my grandkids get to read yeah. that have 
gay family members, just like my grandkids have. And I want those books for my grandkids. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe parents are the last line on what their kids get to read. Yeah. I just don't want parents to think their jurisdiction extends to other people's children. Yeah. And with teachers, administrators, it helps to be proactive instead of reactive. Yeah. You can't just wait till you get a complaint and then decide to do something. No. You need to have a plan. There needs to be a purpose in the list. Mm-hmm that's you know specific to your classroom and then if you have books on there that someone somewhere might find some controversy around and i will tell you every book someone oh. could find some controversy oh, yeah. around um actually had a parent who did not want her child reading jane yolen's devil's arithmetic in our unit on the holocaust now we're talking many many years ago yeah. Because she and her husband were Holocaust deniers and did not believe that the Holocaust had actually happened. My teacher ed program did not prepare me for that conversation. So it's about, you can never presume what a parent might find objectionable in a book. My concern is I see a lot of teachers and librarians preemptively censoring books, never putting them in the collection in the first place. Yeah, because that's one other thing that they'd have to deal with. One other thing they have to deal with. Because honestly, parents... You don't want your child reading a book? That's don't fine. Read don't read it. They don't have to. And I will help them find something else. And it's about getting to know your kids and their families, yeah. too. Yeah. You know? But that I don't want them to think that means they can police every book that's in my classroom library or in our school. Mm-hmm. So does your district have a book selection policy? If you don't know, who could you ask? Yeah. Librarians are often the keeper of this lore. Yeah. Does your school have a book selection policy? Does your department know and then looking at the resources that are out there so you can get ahead of it i uh, kate messner the children's author who's also a former middle school teacher just like me kate had a letter that she put out and mm. i made a similar letter yeah. perneal rip also has a similar letter yeah. to kind of get in front of it and i just my letter basically said middle schoolers are at a wide range of emotional intellectual and physical development i need books that serve the meet the needs of all the readers in my classroom if your child ever brings home a book that you feel they are not a emotionally mature enough to read because that is what is really the issue yes we're not going to go into controversy Mm -hmm. i'm not even using those words if your child brings home a book that you feel they are not emotionally ready to read Mm -hmm. bring it back and i will help them find another one and i will do that in a way that's subtle and that and you know values your child I'm going to ask you a last question because yes. we've been talking about empowering and lists and hearing different voices. Oh, I feel like we're all over the place. Oh, no, I know fine. we had a topic when we started. Yeah, but then we had the <laughs> I can't work my fingers right. And, and, but I think we've still had a good conversation. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, but just as a last one, and it's a pop question that popped into my mind. Okay. Um, when you're thinking about different voices that are meaningful to you and evaluating literature and doing this work yourself, mm-hmm. who are you listening to? Well, I do still subscribe to Booklist, School Library Journal, Horn Book. Mm-hmm. I read those publications. I also read blogs like The Brown Bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Um, as a white woman, I do not have all the lived experiences that I need to evaluate books mm-hmm. uh, that feature people or were written by people who are different from me. Mm-hmm. So I need to rely on those voices who do come mm-hmm. from those experiences. I read the Yalsa blogs. I talk to a lot of teachers and librarians. Mm-hmm. I also talk to a lot of kids still. Yeah. Um, and then the people that I follow on Twitter. I, I do, I do 
if I see a book mentioned by several people who might be seen as influential, it might put that book on my radar, but I still will never recommend a book that I have not read yeah. and that I have not done some research around. Because, and I know there are people who do that, who recommend books or evaluate books without having read them. I don't know how that's possible. I feel like if people trust me to have some credibility, and if I recommend a book, then they are presuming that I have done some work with it. Yeah. And I take that responsibility seriously. Also, when I do book presentations, I list right at the beginning all the resources that I have used to find those books. Oh, that's helpful. To me, that's transparency. Yeah. It's not just the Donna Lynn show and all my preferences. I'm using all of these voices because ultimately a list is not the answer. No. Ultimately, the list, it is about building teacher and librarian capacity. And it's the whole give a fish or teach how to fish model. If I give them a book recommendation, that doesn't help them next time. Yeah. Uh, I want them to have those resources in the hopes that they will be able to use them themselves. On that note, I want to thank you, Donalyn Miller, book whisperer. Thank queen, you. Queen of my heart and actual real friend of mine. Yes. Uh, this has been Victoria Stapleton for the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. With me has been Donalyn Miller, the book whisperer. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast, Victoria. Now, let's figure out what else I can screw up. <laughs> Maybe you should just stay in here for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I see my boss calling me on the phone right now. <laughs>